Good morning. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're in John 4 today, and we're going we're gonna to jump right in. Uh, but first, let me tell you why I think you should listen very carefully to the story we're going to be unpacking uh, today. Uh, it's because there's a couple of different kinds of problems we all face as, as uh, human beings. Uh, there are problems that just come from living in a, in a broken, fallen world. Okay? We live in a broken, fallen world, and that's why we have inflation, and we've got a war in the Ukraine. We've got like plastic bottles polluting the world. We've got the Broncos losing last week 70 to 20 to Miami, okay? It's just, just, certain things just suck because we live in a broken, fallen world. So that's one type of problem. You can't do a whole lot about those kind of problems, okay? You can't control them. Uh, but then there's the self-inflicted kind of problem. And most of our problems are of, of the second nature, okay? So um, you, you feel anxious, perhaps, because you have control issues. You're trying to control too much in your life, and that's creating fear and anxiety in you. You're trying to control the uncontrollable. Um, you, you keep dating him or her, even though you know him or her, be leading you away from God, okay? Bad English, but you get the idea. Um, You you want to read the Bible in the mornings and and nourish your soul on God's word and and connect deeply with God and find joy joy in God, Um, but instead you want to scroll on social media because you're addicted to it. Uh, You you want to make disciples and have an impact, an eternal impact, and and like leave your mark on the world, but you also want to travel every weekend and go see your friends and go here and go there and do CrossFit every night after after work. Sorry to step on the toes of the CrossFitters in the church. Um, You you want a great marriage, but you you don't want to grow in self-awareness, emotional awareness, and and you don't want to like plan date nights. Um, you, You drink too much. You just drink too much. Enough said. Uh, most of our, our problems are self-inflicted. Am I right? Am I speaking truth? We create our own problems most of the time. Right? Uh, what, what is one problem? that this, this message will make a lot more sense to you experientially. If you'll just right now, just, just think about one problem that you have created for yourself. A self-inflicted problem. What comes to mind? If you're not sure, say, God... Which self-inflicted problem do I need to be honest about before you today? Okay. Uh, mine this week has been, because every week I have new ones, uh, m- mine has been saying yes to way too many things. Said yes to way, way too many things. Um, and I, every time I or you say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. Okay? So last night, we, my wife and I came back from an event, and I was like apoplectic. I was so fatigued, so exhausted, no Sabbath, no rest. Just go, 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 all week long. And I kept saying yes to all kinds of things because I wanted to make everybody happy. I wanted to make everybody happy. But I just, I lost my stuff because I realized this week I wasn't doing uh, what I know deep down in my soul I most need to do, which is focus on our movement in Nepal and India. Neglected it for the most part because I was so busy like trying to make everybody happy. Self-inflicted problem. No one's fault but my own that I said yes to too many things. How about you? What, what is your self-inflicted problem? What's getting in the way of you being who you know God wants you to be? What's getting in the way of you doing the things you deeply know down in your soul, the core of your being, God wants you to do? Now, we're going to learn today from the, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that most of our self-inflicted problems come from good things that have become bad things because they become God things. We've taken good things and we, we've, we've asked them to do for us what only... Only God can do. We've substituted creative things for the creator. And, uh, but here's the good news. We're going to learn today that, that we worship our way 
into most of our problems, but we can also worship our way out of our problems. And that's going to make a lot more sense, hopefully, in about 20 minutes. (laughs) I hope. Here we go. All right, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So some religious leaders, these Pharisees, they were uh, kind of betting on the over-under regarding baptisms between John and Jesus. And Jesus was skewing the numbers, and they were really frustrated. They're kind of mad at him. So uh, he goes, you know, I'm gonna, the heat's kind of pretty, pretty, it's pretty hot here in Judea. I'm going to go uh, to Galilee, which is where he did most of his ministry. And uh, he had to go from Judea to Galilee. And he decided that instead of going around Samaria, he would go like right through Samaria. So we got a map here. So most Jewish people, instead of going through Samaria, they would go around Samaria, but it would take them an extra three days. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to take the shortcut. Plus, um, you know, I've got some ministry to do there. But you only went through Samaria if you were Jewish, if you had to. It's like, it's like Greeley. You just don't go there, okay? Unless, you, unless you're going someplace else and you have to go through there. You, you just don't go there. And that's the way Jewish people were regarding Samaria, um, the Jews hated Sumerians. Uh, a civil war took place between the northern kingdom, which later became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, later became known as Judah, in, in the 10th century BC. Um, those who lived in Judah became known as the Jews. Now, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in, in 722 BC, and then he, he sent the northern kingdom into exile, and there they intermarried with other people. Um, they lost their cultural identity, they lost their religion. They lost their, their religious mooring to, to Yahweh, and they created a cult. And then in 586 BC, um, the Babylonians conquered the, the Jewish people, Judah, and then sent them into exile. And they were in exile for a few decades. And then in 538 BC, waves of Jewish people came back from exile back to, back to uh, what we would now call Israel. And, and they began rebuilding the temple. And the Samaritans, when they saw the, the Jewish people rebuilding the, the temple there in Jerusalem, said, hey, can we help you out? And the Jewish people said, uh-uh, no. You're, you're too compromised. You've lost your cultural identity. And oh, by the way, you're not really worshiping Yahweh anymore. You kind of create your own Bible. You just keep the Torah, but you got rid of all the, the wisdom literature, all the historical literature, and you've got this cult thing going on. And we don't want you polluting our religion. So no, you, you can't help us rebuild the temple, which didn't exactly endear them. And they said, okay, you know what? We're going to build our own temple, okay? We're, we're going to go to Mount Gerizim, build our own temple. And then uh, the Jews destroyed that temple, on Mount Gerizim in 128 BC. So um, all this is say, the Jews and the Samaritans were like, they were like following each other on Instagram. They were carrying each other's pictures in their billfold. They, they, they hated each other, hated each other. But because God loves all people, Jesus decided to go through Samaria and, and do ministry there. It wasn't just a shortcut. He was called to minister to all people because God loves all people. Amen, somebody? Okay. All right, John 4, 5 through 9. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to go to Chipotle and buy burritos. Uh, the, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus on his way, can we have the map again? 
Okay, he's, he's, he's going right, right up the middle, and he stops here in Sicker, okay? Which in Greek, it means Starbucks, okay? It's just the, it's the Greek word for Starbucks. And uh, it was like a tourist town. Jacob's well was built there. It was like extra biblical sort of knowledge that that's where he built this well, and he would take care of his livestock and his family there. And so it became like this tourist attraction, and people would go there, and they'd water their animals and water themselves. And women would go there in the mornings, and they would, they would get water for their families to cook with, and they would make tea with it and hang out and talk and gossip and stuff. Um, this woman wasn't there at that time of the day when women would typically go there. She comes at noon because of shame, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But I, I love the fact that, that John says Jesus was tired, um, John's book is a, is a book about the divinity of Jesus. His gospel is it, it's high Christology. It's about the theology of Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ was God. Again and again and again, John's going to make it clear to us that Jesus was God. You want to know God? You know what God looks like? You have to know Jesus. You can't really know God unless you know Jesus. But I love the fact he says Jesus was tired and, and that he... Uh, he needed to sit down and get some rest. It's comforting for us to know that Jesus was just like us. He was fully God, but he was fully human. In the book of Hebrews, it says that he was tempted in every way just as we are. He knows all the struggles, all the struggles that human beings have. Um, he gets us. He gets us, which would be like a really great campaign. You know, we could do like commercials and spend millions of dollars at the Super Bowl doing commercials and stuff, and he gets us. Two of you got that joke. Okay. But in the in this story, Jesus was crossing all kinds of, of cultural boundaries. First of all, he's talking to a woman. Men in those days, you didn't, you didn't talk to women. And, and then they're alone. Like the, the disciples were out getting burritos. They're alone, which is really, really a no-no. But she was a Samaritan. And this has never happened. So she's shocked that he would actually ask her to help him and give him a drink of water. So Samaria, uh, kind of like Greeley, but more like Las Vegas. Uh, you know, what happened there stayed there. And so typically, if 12 single guys like the disciples showed up in Samaria, it was like what 12 single guys would do if they went to Las Vegas, okay? Think hangover. Picture Peter with a missing tooth. Picture, picture the apostle John stealing Mike Tyson's tiger, okay? That's usually what happened when 12 single guys went to Samaria, they became the wolf pack, but that's not what happened. Uh, instead, Jesus, instead of him hitting on this woman, thinking, hey, she's a Samaritan, you know, got an opportunity here. Instead, he treats her with dignity. He preaches the gospel of hope to her and turns her into a missionary. John 4, 10 through 15, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she's thinking about physical realities and, and Jesus is trying to use physical realities to help her understand spiritual realities. She, she's trying to satisfy her physical thirst and he wants to 
satisfy her spiritual thirst, her eternal thirst, her deepest thirst. She wants a reverse osmosis system for the kitchen. And he wants to give her like springs of living water bubbling within her. And this is our human nature, is it not? We all get so caught up in physical realities, we fail to recognize that what we really long for are spiritual realities. We're so caught up in the physical, we, we fail to see the spiritual all around us all the time. I, I uh, had dinner at Shanahan's a few weeks ago because I wasn't paying for it. <laughs> We'd have been there, but someone else was paying for it. And, and we were with some of Chris's family, and we're getting ready to order steaks. I'm like, this is going to be a gr- like the greatest night in such a long time. We're eating steak, and I'm not paying for it. And this woman comes uh, to the table who's our waitress, and she starts asking about our orders and whatnot. And I'm getting to know her a little bit. And I just said, hey, we, we're going to pray in a few moments. We're going to sit down. We're, we're all like followers of Jesus. We're going to pray. Is there some way that, that we could pray for you? And uh, she says, ah, you know, I don't, I don't really think so. And then I, I kept engaging. I said, do you have any kind of like spiritual background? And she goes, well, I'm from the Midwest. And so, of course, I grew up in church, but then I moved to Denver. Of course, I stopped going to church because no one comes to Denver to go to church. And, and uh, she said, so I, I, I kind of, you know, kind of do my thing now, but I'm very spiritual. I'm not very religious, but I'm very spiritual. Anybody ever heard that in Denver? Yeah, like all of us, right? And so I asked her, I said, what does that mean? I'm just curious. What does that mean to you to be spiritual? And she said, I go outside a lot. Like I go hiking with my dog. I'm outside a lot. Full stop. <laughs> I was like, anything else you want to say? No. Um, Denverites substitute physical realities for spiritual ones. We think just being outside in nature, that, that's spiritual. And it can be somewhat of a spiritual experience, but man, there's so much more than just the physical realities that we have moved here to enjoy. Okay. We're so busy worshiping created things that we enjoy that we fail to worship the creator. Let that sink in. We're so busy worshiping all the cool stuff, you know, the the bluebird days and the streams and the fish and the animals and, you know, the hiking and the sunsets and the beer and all the cool stuff that we fail to worship the one who created all these things, the one for whom the creation points to. We fail to express our gratitude and our praise to the one who made everything. Um, Nature's good. God made it good. But, but the natural is no substitute for the supernatural. Uh, this Samaritan was focused on water. Water's good. There's a lot of people in the world who don't have clean water. Water's, water's important. But water's no substitute for the living water that God wants to have bubbling up inside of us. The Holy Spirit inside of us bringing the, the joy of God. Yeah. Physical life is no substitute for eternal life fullness of life. John 4, 16 through 19, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I love her response here. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) You think? Yeah. 
By the way, you'll see the Apostle John do this as we go through the Gospel of John. Every once in a while, he throws in like these little sarcastic statements, and he just had a good sense of humor. You know, I love his sense of humor. He, he reminds us that God has a sense of humor. So uh, this this woman is being she's lovingly being busted by, by Jesus. He, he lets her know that that she knows or he knows she's been married five times and she's she's shacked up with a guy right now. That this woman has had enough husbands and boyfriends to fill a suburban, at least a suburban. Okay. And, and Jesus knows this, but he doesn't judge her. Instead, he loves her. Right? We might have judged this woman. We have diagnosed her. Jesus just, he just loves her. So she most likely went from guy to guy, husband to husband, looking for love and security. And, and there's nothing you know, wrong with wanting love and security in a relationship. We just did a marriage conference Friday night to help people find more love and security in, in in relationships, in romantic relationships, in their marriages. But, but her self-inflicted problem was that she was looking for a man to meet needs at a level, a soul level, that men can't meet, that no human being can meet. She turned a good thing into a bad thing by making it a God thing. Are you following me? She, she was looking for men to be for her what only Jesus could be for her. Only Jesus could give her the kind of love and security and safety that she, she longed for at the core of her being. Um, today, we'd probably diagnose her as being codependent, right? Um, God would diagnose her, as he would us, as being idolatrous. What we call pathology, God usually calls idolatry. We, we can trace most of our pathologies back to worshiping something other than our creator that is failing us. Jonah 2.8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. As John Calvin once said, we are idol-making factories. We are brilliant at turning things into idols. And they work for a while, but they fail us in the end. John 4, 20 through 26, we'll wrap up this story. Um, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place, sorry, uh, front row, sorry. Do you see that? No, good. I just spit like a tooth at you. Um, we're... <laughs> We must worship is in Jerusalem. Back to the text. Okay. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Got a spirit and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Uh, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So she gets pretty uncomfortable here. When Jesus is kind of getting close, especially, you know, that's not the whole idolatry thing with the husbands and all that, you know, the suburban, suburban full of people she's dated in the past. And she's like, okay, this is very uncomfortable. So she did what a lot of spiritual explorers do when we have evangelistic conversations. Uh, she tried to get him into an argument. And so she starts talking about, like, where you go to church. <laughs> she goes, you know, we, Samaritans, we, we like Mount Gerizim, which, oh, by the way, you tore our temple down. You guys worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not go there. Let's not get in an argument. Jesus was smart enough not to get pulled into an argument when she was, he was trying to share the gospel of hope with this woman. And neither should we. Arguments never, never win people over to God. 
So instead he says, uh, where a person worships is not nearly as important as the fact that they worship in spirit and in truth. Because that's, that's what the Father is seeking. It's not about the place. By the way, your temple was torn down. Ours going to get torn down too. 70 AD came down. You're the temple. You can be a temple. We can be a temple. And so he says, what God wants is he wants us to worship him. Like worship him in spirit and in truth. So what's he mean by that? Uh, the word spirit here, it's, it's a homograph, meaning it, it's a word that's pointed to two realities at the same time. So on one hand, it's, it's uh, pointing to the reality of the Holy Spirit, which in the NIV, it capitalizes the word there. And, and so we, we can't worship like the way we were made to worship unless we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, dwelling within us. And Jason talked last week in John 3 about how we need to be born again. Like we need a complete and total spiritual overhaul, complete total restoration, renewal. And, and when we surrender our life to Jesus and we receive the gift of his salvation in that moment, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit teaches us how to worship. But the word for spirit also refers to our spirit. Most translations don't put a capital S there, lowercase s, our spirit. In the Bible, your spirit is synonymous with your heart, which is synonymous with your emotions and your will. Your spirit is the seedbed of your emotions, your feelings and, and, and your will. And so he's saying we have to we have to worship with our hearts, with our feelings, with our emotions, with our will. And truth means we worship what is real. Whenever you see the word truth in the Bible, truth in the Bible is whatever is real. It's reality. And truth in the Bible is personal. So Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus is, is the truth. The truth is a person. The truth has revealed himself to us in flesh and blood. Nothing's more real, nothing's more true than Jesus. All right, so so to worship in spirit and truth means we worship with our emotions and we worship with our minds. We engage with our spirit. We we seek the truth about God and we worship God in light of the truth that has been revealed about him in Jesus Christ. So I I, uh, sometimes during the worship services, I'll just kind of sit in the back, I'll sit in the corner, and I just kind of watch. I'm not trying to be like weird. I just feel like I'm an observer, okay? And I'll, I'll watch you guys worshiping. And you guys do an awesome job, okay? But I, I, there's like three groups of people, typically at restoration, during a worship service. You, you got those who are like really good at worshiping in spirit. They, they worship with their emotions. Some of you have just a lot of emotion. And, and you know, you have your hands up, and you're praising the Lord, and you're, you're crying, and, and, and so you even dance. I've seen people dance in the front row. I have seen people, I kid you not, moonwalk on the front row. It's awesome. I, I wish I could do it. I'm totally jealous. So some of you are just, you're, you're emotional people, and like worshiping with emotion is, is just, you know, it's natural for you. Others, it's not, it's unnatural. You're like, what's up with the people and the hands and the dancing and the crying and all that kind of stuff? You, you like worshiping with your minds, and so I watch you, and I can tell you're, you're engaged, you may not be moving your lips, but man, you're like, you're, you're, you're contemplating. You're thinking about the words in the song. You're thinking about the message. I don't like to look at you when I'm preaching because you're so serious, but you're, I know you're engaged, okay? Okay, but so you, you worship with your mind most naturally. You, you might even like sit in your chair while we're all standing up just to, to worship and contemplate what you've been thinking about regarding the nature of God. And that's a beautiful thing also. And then uh, some of you are just not sure, <laughs> 
You're not sure what to do. Like, this is like an alien concept, this whole worship thing. And, and maybe it's because you're, you're exploring spiritually and you, you've yet to f- begin to follow Jesus. And so you're like, I'm not sure what I believe about this and all these people with their hands up and something's kind of weird. And so you're just not sure. That's fine, okay? Uh, we love you. Many of you are here today. You're exploring faith. And man, just keep coming. Keep kicking the tires. We, we, we love you. God loves you, okay? Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. If you're just spiritually unsure, this is a great place to be. We want to help you find God, know God, follow him, okay? It's okay not to be sure about this whole thing. Others of you, though, you're not sure what to do because there's a really good chance you don't have a private worship life. And so when you, you come into a public worship setting, it's, it's alien. You're not sure what to do because you don't worship during the week. I was at a wedding last night. It's like dancing, Okay. If you don't dance in private in the kitchen, you're not going to be that great at a wedding, okay? If you, if you can't dance, like if you can't moonwalk, you know, which I can't, you know, in the kitchen, you're sure not going to moonwalk on the dance floor when the Michael Jackson songs come on, okay? You got to have a private dancing practice before you can have a public dancing practice. Just ask Billy. He's dancing in the showers and kitchens and all, you know, all the time. He's, he's a phenomenal dancer. Me? No. Um, you, you need a private worship practice, to have a public worship practice. The good news is all of us can grow in our ability to worship God in spirit and truth, privately and and publicly. So let's just shift gears and let's let's, let's see what we can learn from the Samaritan woman. Get real practical here. We're we're heading to the street. We've got 10 minutes to go. Um, What what can we learn from the Samaritan woman about solving our self-inflicted problems and and, and learning how to be worshipers? Uh, Well, first of all, like her... Our self-inflicted problems come from turning good things into bad things. And in so doing, we turn them into God things. Men had become her functional idols, and they kept failing her. Because created things are no substitute for the creator. Keep keep that working inside you. Um, Like the one with the well, we, we worship our way into most of our problems, and we can worship our way out of them. That's the good news. So later in the story... I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but later in the story, uh, after she has this interaction with Jesus, and he's revealed her heart to her, and she has this, this paradigm shift, and she realizes he really is the Messiah. And she makes him her Messiah, her Savior. And the spiritual transformation takes place inside of her as she begins to recognize who Jesus is and worship him. And she's so excited about what's happened to her, she wants to go tell all of her friends because worship always leads to evangelism. True worship always leads to mission, okay? And it says that she left her jar behind at the well. And scholars debate, was that just like an incidental detail or is that some kind of symbol? I don't think anything in scripture is incidental, usually, or very rarely. I think it was symbolic, she was leaving behind this jar that represented all of her attempts to find life apart from God, primarily through men. She was leaving it behind because she had shifted to a new source of satisfaction. And that source is Jesus Christ. So she makes these shifts. She shifted from the physical to the spiritual, from the natural to the supernatural, from the created to the creator. And if we're going to be satisfied, we have to leave our jars behind also and find satisfaction where she found satisfaction. If we're going to solve most of our self-inflicted problems, we need to make these shifts. So how do we do that? Got to leave our jars behind for Jesus. 
We're going to learn to worship our way out of our problems. Dallas Willard says, worship is the activity of the human soul. It's not the activity of a Christian organization, but it does involve them. It's not an emotion or a state of mind, though it may involve both. It's not necessarily or even usually an experience or event, though it may encompass them. It is an entire way of life. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. He's saying that worship is not just something we do on Sundays or in our private devotions. It's, it's, a, it's a full-on, total surrender of the total self, heart, mind, body, soul, to God, moment by moment. And another way to think about worship is that it is an, an anti-idolatry campaign. When we worship, we are, we are campaigning against all the idols that we're tempted every day to worship. So what's this look like, like in real time? Okay, it's Wednesday afternoon and, and you're at work and you're feeling anxious. And, and you ask yourself, why am, I, why am I so anxious? And then you remember that in the morning, you, uh, instead of reading your Bible, you went to your IG account and you saw some people out there that you know and you go, shoot, they're better looking than I am. They dress better than me. They travel more than me. They're married to somebody that, gosh, wish I had somebody like that. Their kids are smarter than mine, so on and so forth. And you realize that you've been unhappy and anxious ever since you scrolled on Instagram. So what do you do? Um, you take a few moments and you repent. You shift. You leave that jar behind and, and you substitute it for Jesus. You shift from the created to the creator and you just start thanking God for your life. You thank him for your face and for your body and for your job and for your health and for your friends and your husband, your wife, whatever. You start thanking him and you start worshiping him and you start praising him. You don't feel like it, but when you start doing it, something comes over you. It's a peace. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's the utter relief of shifting from your weak, pathetic gods to the living God, the only God worth worshiping. Maybe your self-inflicted problem is you're drinking too much. So what do you do? You worship your way into that problem. You can worship your way out of it. You can worship your way out of your dependency on alcohol. You, you admit you have a problem. You look in the mirror and you go, I got a problem. I drink too much. Maybe you even use the A word and you go, a lot of A words. Alcoholic. <laughs> that one. Okay? That one. Hey, pick your, pick your A words carefully. You say, I... I'm an alcoholic. And then what do you do? You confess that to God. You, I have a problem. I can't manage it. I need help. I need help. I can't fix this on my own. And, and you pray for help. And you surrender. And then you do whatever he tells you to do next. You call a friend and say, I got a problem. You go to an AA meeting. You, you do whatever you got to do to become fully free. You, you worship him until you're free. Now, you, you know you should read your Bible in the morning but you also want to watch Netflix at night and eat ice cream. This could be a self-confession, by the way. Uh, so what do you do? You, you pray and you let God know that you know that you're falling short of what's best for you. And then you set an alarm on your watch or your phone, 9 p.m., go to bed, 5 a.m., you get up. 
and you go to your bed, you open your Bible, and you, you listen to God speak to you. You nourish your soul. You start worshiping based on what you're reading. You worship him, you thank him, you praise him, you glorify him until you find your satisfaction in him. In all these scenarios, you're worshiping your way out of a problem you worship your way into. You're turning away from the physical to the spiritual, from the created to the creator. We're going to do that in just a moment. In just a moment, we're going to have an anti-idolatry worship campaign right here, okay, in a few moments. But I'm going to share with you a few practices that will help you in your private and public worship life. First of all, you have to practice surrender. You have to see surrender as a spiritual discipline. You practice it on a regular basis, the act of just truly surrendering everything to God. If you missed uh, the first week of this series, John chapter 1, we talked about swap, surrender, wait, avoid sin, promptings. Listen to that message if you missed it. You need to listen to it again for inspiration. Listen to it again. Surrender is one of the most important spiritual practices that we can participate in because when we surrender, we're moving from our created gods to the creator God. Um, Second, our posture matters. Um, The word for worship means to lie prostrate. I'm enunciating carefully because when you're over 60, you say prostate a lot. Prostrate, okay? When you're older, you'll laugh more. Um, Or you'll cry too. (laughs) uh, Your your, your posture matters. What we do with our bodies, it really, really matters. Our, Our souls follow our bodies. And so in, in the scriptures, over and over again, it, it talks about how when people worship, they would, they would lie prostrate on the ground and they would worship God. They would worship God. Uh, in, in the mornings, this has become a practice of my, again, I'm old, I got to do my mobility in the mornings, I do my squats and stuff. I will get in child's pose to get my little flexion in my, in my knees and I'll put my arms in front of me and for a while I'll just sit there and I'll worship God. I'll just wor- head down to the ground. The word for worship also means to kiss the ground. So I'll kiss the ground and just worship, worship my king for a few minutes. It is life-giving. It's freeing. Um, lifting hands, this is also a really great practice. Whether you do it privately or you do it publicly, uh, it's a symbol of surrender, which, again, is so important to worship. So if somebody puts a gun and says, I want your billfold, what do you do? I surrender. You can have my billfold. Uh, so it's an, it's an act of surrender. It's saying, I surrender to God. That's what, what you're saying when you raise your hands. So if you've never done this, I'm going to encourage you to try something like this today. Raise your hands. Raise your hands. Just, no one's paying attention. It's like dancing. Just forget about people. Just raise your hands. It's also an act of celebration. Okay? What happened yesterday when CU scored? You raised your hands. Some of you did. Right? Threw popcorn everywhere. Whatever. Um, it's, a, it's a way of celebrating the living God. Um, also, if you're single, it's a great way to signal that you're single. Got Dunbarine on, meet me on the porch, okay? It's, there's, lots of, there's lots of ancillary benefits that come from worshiping at restoration, okay? People have married because they raise their hands here. Something else that's very helpful is uh, finding a worship refrain you repeat over and over again. So you, know, you notice how in worship songs, there's like a phrase or a few phrases that are just repeated over and over again? It's to help us kind of get in that, that place where those words mean something to us. So in, in Revelation 4 and 5, there are these, these beings that are worshiping before the Lamb of God. And they just keep saying the same things over and over and over again. Uh, one of the things they say is in Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is one of my favorite refrains. When I want to worship, I don't know what to say and what to sing. I'll just, I'll just put this on repeat. When I go for my walks in the morning, often I'll just, I'll just 
it's dark, no one's looking, I'll raise my hands, I'll go, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come, holy, 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 yeah. R.S.T. Finn, let's worship the living God. Let's, let's worship our holy God right now. Let's worship our way out of some of the problems we've worshiped our way into. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. What is that self-inflicted problem you're facing right now? And could it be that it's a, a really good thing coming from a really good desire, but you've made it a bad thing because you made it a God thing? You've made it something that's too ultimate, too important. It could be a desire, it could be control, it could be a person, it could be your kids, your job, your body, your ego, your reputation. It could be your money, your career, your image. I don't know what it is, but what is it? Will you name it right now and confess it to the Lord? Will you surrender that creative thing back to your creator, the one who made it? Will you, will you just give it to him? Maybe you, you put your hands on your knees and you open your hands up and you just let it go. Let it go. And, and now will you worship God in your hearts? We just like worship him as he deserves. We, we praise him for who he is. Maybe you say in your heart right now, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. Say in your hearts again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. Repeat that a few times. Forgive us. Forgive us for clinging to idols that will not satisfy. Forgive us for taking created things and worshiping them. For giving them the praise and the adoration that only you, our creator God, are worthy of. We repent right now. We confess that our idolatry is sin. And we turn from our sin and our idols to you, the living God. We worship you. We worship you. We worship you.